0: question for you. Uh, Group participation, okay? So meaning let's all raise our hands if this would be true for you. Uh, If I were to ask the question, uh, one year from now, how many of you would love to be able to say, I've actually grown in how I relate with God? If that's true of you, just raise your hand, okay? For those of you not raising your hand, just play along. Come on. I'm guessing all of us here, uh, the fact that you're just here is at least evidence that you want to grow in how you relate with God. And I realize some, you are still trying to figure out faith. You're trying to figure out what life with God is like. And for some, you've begun that relationship with God, whether it was recently or just maybe even in the past, you know, years or decades But it's safe to say all of us here, one year from now, would love to be able to say, I am relating with God today differently than I was a year ago. So because that's true, I think the question that we can then ask ourselves is this. Well, how does one grow? Like, how does one actually grow in how we relate with God? How do we grow in our relationship with God? I'm guessing we all have very different learning styles of ways that we learn and ways that we grow. I'm guessing some are visual. You just need to actually see it. I'm guessing some, their learning styles are just very verbal. You just need to hear it, kind of talk things through. Uh, I'm guessing for some, your learning style is social. It needs to just be done in kind of a a group context, group thinking. You just kind of learn that way uh, through social settings with folks. And maybe for some, your learning style is just very physical. It's hands-on. Show me what the project is, and let's do the project together. And through me getting my hands on it is exactly how I'm going to learn. Now, all different learning styles. But as I've been just spending time in uh, God's Word, the Bible, for the better part of the last 30 years, one of the things that I have noticed along the way is that God actually has a universal way that He grows people. God has a universal way that regardless of what your learning style is or is not, I would call God's learning, uh, his, the way that He grows us, I would just simply call it desert university. Uh, I would love to tell you that God loves to work within your preferred learning style, often in a situation that is a very comfortable setting for you. But God often, uh, not always, but God often uses seasons of desert, meaning seasons of trials or seasons of hardship, is His primary way to grow us. Now, last week, we met a community, the people of God, nation of Israel, that were complaining, and they were complaining of, because they didn't have something that they wanted, something that they needed, and so they complained to God. And as we looked in the story last week, God was incredibly gracious to a community of men and women who were complaining against him, and he actually provided for them. Now, what I didn't read last week was what actually happened after God provided what they were complaining to him for. And it says in Exodus chapter 15, uh, verse 27: After leaving Mara, Mara is the place the people of God had said, This is an oasis, and it is a bitter place because the water was not good to drink. "...the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there beside the water." Now, I'm not familiar with desert living, but I can only envision that the people were pretty excited and pretty stoked to be staying and camping out at uh, the oasis of Elam, where there is springs for every single tribe of Israel. There is plenty of water to be had for everyone that was there. I'm guessing that the people were now very content because what they had complained about, they actually now have in excess. I'm guessing that they were growing very comfortable. Now again, I don't know for you what your experience has been, but when I look back over seasons of growth in my life, it always came when I was put into a position of I had no other alternative but to depend on God. Whether it was having to depend on God in a relational situation, whether it was having to depend on God maybe in a financial situation, whether it was having to depend on God in like everything is out of control type of situation, or is having to depend on God when you're just in that I'm lost and confused situation. When I look back over the years, the ways that God has often, if not always, grown me the most is when I've been put in a situation where I had to ultimately depend on Him and Him alone. God is committed to growing us just in the same way that God is committed to growing His people, the nation of Israel. And that is why it was time for them to actually begin moving further and further into the desert. And so we pick up the story in Exodus 16, uh, verse 1. Just one verse here. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of sin between Elam and Mount Sinai they arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. So we see for the better part of 40 days, the people of God enjoyed the natural springs here of Elam. And most certainly, it would have been a very restful place for them to be staying. Now, I can only envision the questions that people were asking Moses, their leader, as to why are we leaving Elam Springs Resort? I can only envision they're asking questions hey, why can't we just stay here? We have everything that we need. Why are we moving further and further into the desert? We've got water, we've got swimming pools. Like, everything that we need is right here in front of us. Why are we headed into the desert? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, if we know that God is ultimately committed to growing us, then it would make perfect sense that God is leading them to go further and further into the desert. And as we saw last week, we'll see again this week, when things get hard— when things get challenging, when things are not going the way that you want them to go, complaining is often not far behind. And so this is the response to journeying further into the desert. Verse 2, "...there, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt." If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around, pots filled with meat, and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into into this wilderness to starve us to death. This is not just like a few rotten apples here in the community complaining. It says in the text, the whole community began to complain. We get frustrated and annoyed if one person is complaining in our life. Can you even begin to imagine what it would sound like to have two million plus people all complaining? Over the past few weeks, as I've been uh, thinking a lot about Israel's journey from Egypt now into the desert, uh, and thinking specifically about complaining because we see that seems to be the response. Uh, there's three realizations that I've had about complaining. Uh, coming from Exodus 16. And the first one is this, complaining doesn't happen overnight. Complaining doesn't happen overnight, meaning this community was not just having a bad day. It wasn't just having a bad moment in time, and so therefore they complained. This community had actually established a rhythm and a routine of complaining. When things got hard, didn't go their way, their rhythm and routine was they began to complain. Now, if you remember, when God raised up Moses to be a deliverer for his people, Moses goes back to Egypt, talks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh makes things harder for the people of God. Their response to God raising up a deliverer, even though it was hard, was to begin complaining. After the amazing plagues that just totally ruined Egypt but helped set the people uh, of God free... When they are literally leaving Egypt, walking into their freedom, and Pharaoh's army begins to chase them down, their rhythm and routine that they had established was ultimately to complain, and they begin complaining again. So that rhythm that they had established was complaint. Now, even though they had seen God over and over and over be God, even though they had seen God provide for them in so many different ways... The rhythm that they had established was to be men and women who were of complaint. And so just obviously maybe begs the question for us, what is your rhythm and routine that you've established when things don't go your way? What's the rhythm and routine that you've established that when things are getting hard, what is your response? Complaining just doesn't happen overnight. It's not something, well, that was a bad moment and I complained. Think through what is the rhythm and routine that you've actually established. Because if the default rhythm is complaining, as it has been for me, well, then the second realization that I've had about complaining from Exodus 16 would be this. Complaining reveals the heart. Actually, complaining says something about you. It says something about me, and it certainly says something about the people of God. Complaining is what they did because that's ultimately what was in their hearts, so, I want to read verse 3 again, and I want to ask this question before I read it. What is when you hear their complaint, what does their complaint ultimately reveal about what's going on in their heart? Cuz listen to verse 3 again. If only the Lord, Yahweh, had killed us back in Egypt. They moaned, they complained. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now, you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. That's a really serious complaint. So what does that complaint reveal about what's ultimately in their hearts? Well, what I wrote down is they're believing the worst about God and His intentions towards them. That one complaint ultimately reveals they are believing the absolute worst About God, who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, and they're believing the absolute worst about God's intentions towards them as a people. I mean, imagine this, in light of everything that they had seen, what they're essentially saying to God is, We wish you had not even rescued us. We wish, God, that you never even bothered to rescue us. If you're American historian, maybe you remember Patrick Henry, who Famously declared, give me freedom or give me liberty or give me death. Well, what the people of God were saying in this this complaint is the complete opposite. Give us bondage or give us death. It wasn't give us freedom. It wasn't give us liberty. It wasn't give us redemption. It wasn't give us rescue. It was give us bondage or give us death. So not only had complaining corrupted their heart towards God, but it also led them to begin believing things about God that ultimately were just not true about Him, and ultimately leading them to believe things about what life was like before God had rescued them. Again, in verse 3, "...there we sat around, pots filled with meat, and ate all the bread that we wanted." Like, when did Egypt, for the Israelites, when did Egypt and bondage become like the good old days for them? Like, how is it possible that they began looking backwards like, oh, man, Egypt, it was so amazing. Man, those were the good old days. Like, in the beginning of the story in Exodus 2, when we meet the Israelites, this is what it says of them, the Israelites continued to groan. Under the burden of slavery, they cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. So, how do we go from groaning in Egypt to now thinking of Egypt as this wonderful place to live with some really nice restaurants? Like, what happened in their hearts and their heads? Well, complaining is that toxic. Complaining is toxic to the heart and the soul. And in time, it will begin to rot your heart towards God. And in time, it will eventually lead you to start believing things about God, namely that somehow life before God was such a much better life to live. So I want to ask an honest question. No one has to raise their hand on this one, but I just want you to consider. I want you to examine your heart with this. If you're a Christian today, you would identify yourself as, hey, I am a follower of Christ. Well, my question for you is this. Do you ever have any moments where you think to yourself, man, life used to be so much easier before I made the decision to follow Jesus. Again, you have to raise your hand on that. But if I'm asking myself that question, I would have to raise my hand. That I've had certainly moments in my journey, my relationship with God, where I have thought to myself, gosh, life was so much easier before I started following Christ. Now, I know that might be at some level disconcerting for me to admit that, But I would be absolutely lying to you if I said I never thought to myself, man, it would be so much easier if I could just do whatever I want to do. Man, it would be so much easier if I could just act out on all the things that I want to act out on. It would be so much easier if I could just tell that person what I really want them to tell, what I ultimately think that they need to hear. See, the reality is that being a Christian, meaning being a follower of Christ, is about dying to yourself and living for Jesus. If you're a Christian, it's about doing His will, not yours. If you're a Christian, it's about being a follower and not leading. If you're a Christian, it's about Jesus being at the center, not you being at the center. So yeah, there have been times when I thought to myself that it would be so much easier if I could just do my will, follow my way, and keep myself at the center. But... When I have those moments, the thing I quickly forget is that when I was doing my thing, when I was doing my will, when I was doing my way, when I was doing me at the center of my life, the thing that I forget is I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable when that was my existence. When I was making everything about me, when I was about my will, my way, me at the center, I was actually absolutely miserable miserable. See, when things aren't going your way, how easy is it to repeat the sin that we see here in Exodus 16, to start thinking of how great it was just to do your own thing, all the while completely forgetting about the bondage that you were once in to things like shame and guilt and fear and emptiness, and ultimately the bondage that you were in to sin, What complaining had begun to do in the hearts of the people of God was leading them to believe things about God that were just ultimately not true. So complaining not only is able to have a deceptive effect on us, a a toxic effect on us, but it also has a blinding effect on us. When our hearts are just filled with complaint, it blinds us towards who we're actually complaining to this is the third realization I want us to see from Exodus 16 about complaining. Complaining is always directed towards God. Always. Complaining is always directed towards God. Now, it says in Exodus that the whole community complained to Moses and Aaron. So it would seem like their complaint was not towards God, but was actually towards these two leaders within the community. But as you actually begin to read further into Exodus chapter 16, you see four times over that their complaint was not towards Moses and Aaron, but was first and foremost towards God. It says in Exodus 16, because he has heard your complaints, that's verse 7, verse 8, for he has heard all your complaints against him not against us. Verse 9, for he has heard your complaining. And verse 12, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now, I know that complaining often feels like it's maybe towards a person or it's towards a situation or circumstance that you're in, but in Exodus 16, it reminds us that our complaining is always first and foremost directed towards God. Now, if God is sovereign, Meaning, if God is truly in charge of all things in our lives, if God is in complete control, which, by the way, He is, when we complain about the marriage that we have, the marriage that we're in, or maybe complain about the marriage that we don't have, anytime that we are maybe complaining about the relationship that we have with this person, or maybe the relationship that we don't have with this person, but ultimately really want, anytime we're complaining about that, or maybe anytime we're complaining about our career, what's happening at work, or maybe complaining about the career that we don't ultimately have, or anytime we're complaining about just the people around us, what they're doing, or maybe what they're not doing, all of that complaining, regardless of what it is, is first and foremost a complaint against God, namely His character. You might think you're complaining to and about your husband or to and about your spouse or your boss or whoever it might be, but all complaints are first and foremost a complaint against God and His goodness. So those are just three things I wanted to share with you that I'm learning afresh about complaint and how toxic it actually is. But as you press on into Exodus 16, does anyone want to even take a guess as to how God responded to 2 million-plus people complaining against Him. Do we think that God maybe brought punishment, or do we think that God maybe brought provision? Well, here's how God responded in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out, pick up as much food as they need, for that day, and I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, it will uh, it when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. And then in verse eight, then Moses added, "The Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning." Now, despite hearing grumbling, complaining over and over and over and over again, once again, we see God's character. He meets their complaining with His grace. He meets their complaint with His gracious provision in their life. Now, it's in these few verses that we actually catch a glimpse of what the people had been complaining about. And what they had been complaining about is they wanted food, Now, if you remember from a few moments ago when I said complaining actually reveals the heart, if you just examine your complaints, it will be a picture of what's actually happening in your heart. Well, what we learn about what's in in the heart of the people of God with their complaint is this, discontentment. Like what had taken residence in the people of God's heart was discontentment. Because a person who suffers from discontentment is not one who suffers from having nothing, but one who suffers from not liking what they actually have. That's the heart of discontentment. It's not that you don't have something. It's you don't like what you actually have or have been given. Now, if you remember when Israel marched out of Egypt, uh, do you remember that they marched out with all of their livestock? They had all of their animals with them. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not a farmer, but when I see a cow, I don't immediately think to myself, well, gosh, that would make a great pet. When I see a cow, I immediately think, medium rare steak, that's going to taste good one day. (laughs) Point being, they had food. They had the ability to actually make milk, to make cheese, and they certainly had the ability to eat meat. The problem was they didn't like what they had. They were. Absolutely discontent with what they had. And so I think the question is why did God do this? Like, why did He rain down heavenly food on a people that ultimately were a community of complainers, a community of discontented people? Like, as you read through the Psalms, the psalmist gives actually even a a more amazing picture of what God does in His provision for His people. It says in Psalm 78, They ate the food of angels. They ate the food of angels. God gave them all they could hold. And then Psalm 105, He satisfied their hunger with manna, bread from heaven. It says again in Psalm 78, He rained down meat as thick as the dust, birds as plentiful as the sand on the seashore. Keep in mind, they're in the desert. And then again in Exodus 16, everyone... Had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. So clearly, God's not rewarding their behavior for being a community of discontented complainers. So, why does God do this? Why does God rain down manna, the food of angels, the food of heaven? Why does He provide meat upon the meat that they already actually have? I think we find our answer in Exodus 16, verse 7 and 12. In the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. When the people of God would see God once again provide for them, that was a picture, a glimpse into God's glory, his honor. Every time you see God provide something for you, whether it's a small thing or a big thing or something in between, you're getting a glimpse of the glory of God. Every time you see God provide, whether it's a financial thing, whether it's a relational thing, whether it's a situation at work or in school, every time you see God provide for you, whatever that provision might be, that is so that you can see the glory of God. That is so that you can know that God is God. That's why God did it. He didn't just provide for these people as a reward for their behavior. God provided for these people so they would see a glimpse of His glory, that they would know Him. So, if God was using the desert to grow His people, what was it that He wanted His people to grow in? What was it that he was wanting these people to know. And I think it was simply this, God alone is enough. God alone is enough. God alone is enough. When someone sees the glory of God, really the sum total of all his perfections, they will believe that God alone is enough. When someone knows God relationally, and not just data about God, not just information about God. But when someone knows relationally and experientially the knowledge of God, they will believe that God alone is enough. God is not wanting in this moment for His people to know what He gives is enough. He's wanting His people to know that He alone is actually enough. If God alone is not enough for you, your life will be marked by complaint. Your life will be marked by discontentment. If God alone is just not enough, you will always find someone or something to complain about. And as what we've talked about moments ago, complaining is so toxic to our heart and soul. Gets us to believe things about God that are not true. And it gets us to believe things about what life with God was like, how great it was, when it wasn't. But when God alone is enough, not the things of God, but when God alone is enough for you, you will continue to just enjoy seeing His glory every single day. When God alone is enough, you will enjoy entering into the rest that God provides for you. And when God alone is enough, you will continue to be filled with gratitude over the provision of that He provides for you. 25 minutes ago, I asked the question, a year from now, would you like to say that you've grown in how you relate with God? And I'm pretty sure all of us, whether we raised our hands or not, would say, yeah, I do. I want to grow in how I relate with God. Well, as I've been sitting in Exodus 16, uh, specifically this past week, I think the ways that God wants to grow us is the exact same ways that he wanted to grow them. And it's that he would grow us to be men and women, a church, a people that would simply say, God, you alone are enough. If I have you, then I have everything. Not the gifts of God, not the provisions of God, but just God alone. So just finish by asking the question, is God alone enough? Is God for you enough? One of the things as I turn the page into the New Testament, we meet an individual whose name was Paul. And one of the things that Paul said is uh, in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little for I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. So you and I, on our own, can't do God alone is enough. We need Jesus, the one who said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never hunger again because Christ, God in flesh, is enough. So this isn't the message of like, hey, let's all suck it up. Let's all just kind of will ourselves to make sure that God alone is enough. Paul who walked with Christ, simply said, I've known, I've learned, I've grown in the secret of contentment. And it doesn't come from having everything, and it certainly doesn't come from having nothing. I've learned the secret of being content that God alone is enough through Christ, who is the one who strengthens me.